This is episode 164 of That Shakespeare Life. The video version for today's episode, including archival images and other visual elements we're not able to share in the audio of the podcast, are available inside the video version of our show, which we share inside the digital streaming app for That Shakespeare Life. Find that at caskycash.com slash app and stay tuned after the episode for even more details. Hi, I'm Jennifer Jorm, PhD student at the University of Queensland. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. In this time period and even going before and after, there are so many recipes that show you that there's multiple ways to make it and each household had their own recipe. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. In Cymbeline, Act 1, Scene 1, Posthumous Leonatus says, quote, I'll drink the words you send, though ink be made of gall, end quote. And in Twelfth Night, Sir Toby Belch calls attention to a particular kind of ink when he says, quote, Let there be gall enough in thy ink, though thou write with a goose pen, end quote. In Act 3, Scene 2 is where he says that. Both of these scenes from Shakespeare's plays are referencing the most popular kind of ink used in Shakespeare's lifetime, and that is iron gall ink. The phrase iron gall ink was used to describe a common standard ink, and as Sir Toby Belch illuminates with his lines, the ink was used to dip your goose pen into to write letters or any kind of correspondence on paper you wanted to write down. The ink was made from a fermentation of oak galls, which is partially where the ink gets its name. The other part, the iron of iron gall ink, comes from the iron salt that is added during the fermentation process to create iron gall ink. Here today to share with us the history of iron gall ink and explain exactly how the ink of Shakespeare's lifetime was created is historical calligrapher, chemist, and owner at Scribal Workshop, Lucas Tucker. An early lover of calligraphy, Lucas began practicing calligraphy at age 10. Later, he developed an interest in medieval and Renaissance-era calligraphy and illumination styles, which is when he started studying the methods used during those eras to produce the illuminated manuscripts we have today. With a foundation in chemistry, Lucas researched the materials and tools that had been used to create medieval and Renaissance illuminated manuscripts and eventually began creating his own historically accurate calligraphy and illumination materials. Beginning with ink, Lucas eventually expanded the materials he produced to include many things from animal skin parchment to historic paints and pigments, even taking up blacksmithing in order to learn how to make a scribe's knife accurate to the medieval and Renaissance eras. Today, Lucas Tucker is the owner, chief calligrapher, and ink maker at Scribal Workshop, a craftsman business that specializes in historic writing, art, calligraphy, and illumination. You can practice your own Renaissance calligraphy as well as pick up a bottle of authentic iron gall ink at Lucas's shop, and we link you to those resources in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Lucas. Welcome to the show. Hi, it's nice to be here. How many kinds of ink were available during Shakespeare's lifetime? So there's actually several. The main one is the iron gall or oak gall ink, but there's also sepia ink is around, but it's most of the other inks and writing fluids. And so I'm going to be really general here that writing fluids are things that you could theoretically write, draw, 
or interact with with a quill pen. And there's actually a ton of them, almost anything you can make a color or a pigment out of. But if you're talking about actually writing down words by hand, the obvious choice and the choice that almost anyone would use would be iron gall ink because not only can you write with it cleanly, but it's also waterproof or water resistant. Is iron gall ink then the most common ink for the 16th and 17th century? Like if we're looking at things that are surviving from the time period that have been written in ink, is it usually iron gall ink that's on those papers? Absolutely. There are several references in Shakespeare's plays that suggest the ink used for writing might have been dangerous for one's health if you accidentally drank it. Was writing ink also considered to be a poison? So about a quarter of an ounce to a third of an ounce of a well-made iron gall ink with the proper amount of iron in it in modern times will actually send you to the hospital to get your, to get your stomach pumped because it causes iron poisoning. So we need iron as a supplement and we need iron in our diets. But if you drink enough iron gall ink, you'll actually suffer from iron poisoning. And the early stages of that are some muscle weakness, constipation, and some other weird effects are small amounts of iron poisoning, which I've actually experienced while making iron gall ink when I dumped a whole bunch all over myself one time. Oh, no. um, I absorbed enough through my skin to cause minor iron poisoning, but actually higher amounts could actually kill you. So a small bottle of a one ounce bottle of ink is definitely enough to kill an adult. We know that the gall in iron gall ink comes from the oak gall used to create the ink, but what exactly is an oak gall? So an oak gall is a growth that oak trees get when a certain type of wasp and actually every variety and region of oak tree has its own type of wasp and its own specific species of wasp that lays eggs inside the branches and the leaves of the oak tree. When this happens, the oak tree doesn't like it. So it basically creates a small tumor-like growth around that wasp egg and that wasp egg and because of that growth, it actually increases the tannic content that the tree puts in that area, particularly in the oak galls that you get used for oak gall ink. And so it grows around that wasp egg, and that wasp actually grows within that growth and hatches out. But it's really a defense mechanism to a parasitic wasp. The other half of the iron gall ink is the iron added to the ink in the form of ferrous sulfate or iron salts that were processed in with the oak galls to create ink. Lucas, in our modern age today, the idea of buying a packet of ferrous sulfate to create this chemical compound of iron gall ink seems like something you would just go to the store and purchase or look it up on Amazon. But for someone in Shakespeare's lifetime, what did getting these materials together really look like? Where did someone go to get iron salts in the 16th century? You'd go to the store and pick it up. No way. Um, it's Just actually like way <laughs> it's way easier to pick it up in period than it is here. Here you have to actually to get a nice clean iron salt, you actually have to find it online for specialty shops. In period almost any apothecary was actually going to carry the materials to make ink and was going to carry iron salts. So they were used for medicinal purposes, they were also used for ink making, they were used for a lot of other things. Um we're actually more heavily regulated and it's harder to find a lot of these materials nowadays than it was back then. So the cool thing is, is that iron salts, iron sulfate in period, it's mined out of mines out of the ground, and it tends to come adulterated with copper salts as well. There are a few recipes from the period, an earlier period, that call specifically for green or green gem copperos is what it was called, ferrous sulfate. And what this is, is it's the purified form. And so they would put it into large barrels and suspend ropes in it, just like you're making rock candy, but they were making 
of rock crystalline and recrystallizing the iron salts, which actually give you a much cleaner and purer form and help you to eliminate all of the rust that can also be present, which can interfere with the flow quality of the ink and the copper, which actually doesn't contribute to the color very much. And actually long-term we now know is one of the primary causes of degradation in parchment and paper is actually the copper contamination um, because it accelerates the degradation, the oxidation of those documents over time. So really important to use good ink, not just any ink. Absolutely. Some historians record that laws were passed in Great Britain to try and define the content of iron gall ink, presumably for this effort to make sure the ink was was permanent and didn't fade. But Lucas, does the need for laws like that suggest iron gall ink could be wiped off or smudged off the page after something was written down? So there's this weird balance that you get. If you add too much thickener and you add a lot of thicker, it actually behaves really nicely off the pen and you can get really clean, crisp lines, but it doesn't soak into the parchment or the paper. And so it actually makes it so that the pigment particles actually stay suspended and it can flake off. This is the same problem you have with any of the old carbon-based inks. And so you end up with an ink that is actually much easier to remove and much easier to take off. Whereas if it's not too much thickener, but enough to consistently flow, but then it's still liquid enough that it soaks into the page, then you get something that's completely waterproof and impermeable to moisture and permeable to damp. And it's actually incredibly difficult to erase or wipe off. The interesting thing about this time period is laws related to writing and regulations related to writing and things in the time period. Um, You had regulations that everybody had to wear a hat on Sundays. And this was because the hat makers in England were losing business to imports from mainland Europe. And so Queen Elizabeth actually passed a law saying that everybody had to wear a hat on Sunday that was a flat cap that was manufactured by local creators in Europe. And so you have to remember that a lot of your regulations are not only related to how waterproof it is, but that's the verbiage that gets used, but also so that you're not just buying stuff from elsewhere. It has to be an approved vendor sort of situation. And we still have that in government all over the world that you have to get your vendors approved. So a little bit about making the ink useful and a little bit about bolstering England's economy. Kind Absolutely. Kind of a, a dual yeah. purpose there. Yep. So I'm a huge fan of classic film and I always see people who sit down and write by dipping their pen into this inkwell and they'll write something down. They usually blot the ink or powder it with some kind of powder. Would that have been the process when somebody was writing with iron gall ink in Shakespeare's lifetime or do they just leave it on the page till it dries? So it's actually ridiculous. They always show you using a ponce pot is what that's called after you write. The ponce pot is actually from before you write. It is to prepare the parchment or the paper so that it doesn't bleed and feather out the ink. It's actually to help seal all of the pores in your writing surface so that you then get nice crisp lines afterwards. So it's called a sand. The other term is a sanding pot. It's actually made from cuttle bone or gum sandrack or a mixture of the two. And it's actually for use before you write, not after you write. And almost every movie that you've seen where you see them putting the powder on afterwards, that's going to just completely ruin and smudge everything you've done and actually cause more bleeding from particle effects. And it's just going to be terrible. 
there is blotting paper that starts to get manufactured in the period and a little bit later. I think it's right around Shakespeare's time or a little later that absorbs fast enough that it cleans it. But that's very seldom used for actual writing. It's used for fast things that you need to get done and moved out like a signature. Um, But actually, if you look at the pattern of drying on old manuscripts, you can see where there's thicker and thinner levels based on the angle that they were written off. And you see higher, thicker puddle areas and darker areas that you get from the effects of just letting something dry naturally. So staging directors take note. Now we know you have to put the bond spot on before, before you write. Exactly. With all of this regulation around Iron Gall Inc., is there like a standard recipe from the 16th century that can allow you to date a document based on the chemical makeup of the ink that was used to write it? So the simple answer is not at all. Um, <laughs> That's the simple answer? <laughs> yeah, the simple answer is not at all. The complicated answer is there are some regional differences based on contamination in the iron and based on how available things are. So iron gall inks that were manufactured in Mexico in the same time period, the Nicomopua manuscript, which is the first one that talks about the Lady of Guadalupe. I did some work with one of the researchers for that. And actually the contamination seems to show that the ratio of the contamination is that although they imported their oak galls, most likely they were actually using local iron source because it matches the local mines. And so there are some nuance that you can use, but they're very broadly regional and not really in Europe. You can tell based more by region and less so by time period, just because the number of recipes you have and the breadth of things that will actually make a functional ink is humongous. We've covered previously on that Shakespeare life, the history of graphite pencils and this discovery of graphite in Borrowdale, England during Shakespeare's lifetime that made writing with a pencil popular in England around this time. Comparing graphite to pen and ink, Lucas, what were the benefits of using a quill and ink that made someone choose to write in ink rather than pencil? So quill and ink is permanent. It's also considered something that is longer lasting. It's something that is considered a good and useful final writing of the words. Uh, When you're looking at pencil in that time period it's interesting pencils are actually not replacing pen and ink they're actually replacing a lead stylus and so a lead stylus actually writes exactly like a pencil and was used for underdrawing of artwork for hundreds and hundreds of years dating back all the way to the roman times and so what you're actually starting to replace with graphite graphite when it was found was referred to as hard lead because it wrote just like lead but they didn't have to process it out and smelt it and you didn't risk at this time period they started to understand that lead had some poisonous characteristics um that's why sweet lead wasn't sold as much in in apothecaries at this time period so the advantages of pen and ink are that you get permanence and that you get something that will last and not be rubbed off graphite has a just tremendous problem with that It's a great first step for sketching as a replacement for lead, but it just really can't replace something that you want to be permanent. We've talked about the importance of making ink in the best way possible without all these contaminants so that it functions at its best. What does that mean that iron gall ink would have been made by a specialist during Shakespeare's lifetime? You mentioned that all of these ingredients to make it were available individually in apothecary shops. So would someone like Shakespeare have gone to the store and bought his ink or would he have gone to the store to buy the ingredients to make his own ink? So there are 
more recipes for ink than there are recipe books. So in this time period and even going before and after, there are so many recipes that show you that there's multiple ways to make it and each household had their own recipe. There's actually a lot of debate as to who would make it and what it would be made. And if like one household, it was just made by one person or if anybody made it following the recipes. And there is evidence and anecdotal evidence and some writings that talk about going and buying ink from people who made really, really good ink. And so for Shakespeare himself, it really probably depended upon whether it was easier and cheaper to just buy his ink or whether it was easier and cheaper to make it himself, which I find really fun for me is I make ink and I'm very proud of the ink that I make and sell, but I'm also more than happy to sell the materials and the ink making kit with a good recipe that I think is reliable because it really comes down to personal preference that even in this time period, you could either pick it up probably at the apothecary as well because apothecaries are business people. If they're, if somebody's willing to make the ink instead of make it themselves, they're more than happy to sell you the ink as well. So the answer is we don't know and it could have been either or both depending upon that day or that year. Really highlights the artisan factor of the iron gall ink. I think that you have these options. It's a lot like paint and paintings. You you can do it either way. So exactly, yeah. So was iron gall ink the same ink that was used on printing presses from this time period? It wasn't. So iron gall ink is water based and it doesn't stick to metal type. So probably everybody likes to talk about the movable type aspects of the printing press and Gutenberg's printing press. Believe it or not, probably the biggest innovation that Gutenberg made was to steal Van Eyck's work with oil paints and adapt those. And actually Van Eyck published the book for people to use, but to take Van Eyck's oil painting recipes and adapt them for printing because you're now able to use metal type that allows you to create printed work instead of having to rely on something that liquid and water-based inks will stick to like wood. And so wood will absorb enough ink and then release enough ink to print with. Whereas metal, if you try to put iron gall ink on metal, it just puddles and then gets into the crevices and it just makes this huge mess. And what you need is actually something that's kind of sticky and gummy and will stick to it, but then will also cure. And so it's actually the use of the ink that was used at the time period is much more akin to an oil paint than it is actually a liquid writing fluid like iron gall ink. I know we would love to learn more about this topic and the history of ink and how it was made. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? So I really like the irongallink.org website. It used to be called the Ink Corrosion website, and it's actually adjusted and changed over the course of the last, I don't know, 25 years or something. It used to be sub-hosted somewhere else and has migrated a couple of times to keep track of it. I also have an article, my favorite article that I wrote on Iron Gall Ink is on our website, scribbleworkshop.com, and it's called Iron Gall Ink, The Nerdy Parts, um, where I actually talk about basically what the purpose of each of the ingredients it's called to in one of the more famous Iron Gall ink recipes. There's also for historic writing and art and things, there's On Diverse Arts by Theophilus, The Art, The Craftsman's Handbook or Il Libro del Arte by Senino de Senini. You also get, there's a new one that came out in the last few years called The Craft of Liming and the Manner of Staining, Mid- Middle English Recipes for Painters, Stainers, Scribes, and Illuminators. It's actually excerpts 
of original source material, most of it untranslated in Middle English for people who are interested in these types of work. If you're really specifically looking at handwriting and writing styles for the Shakespearean time period, the EMO, E-M-M-O, repository at the Folger Shakespeare Library is phenomenal with digitized manuscripts where you can look through of letters and manuscripts and all kinds of things to kind of pull out what the handwriting looked for and start in down and looking into the paleography of it. These are great resources for sure. And we love all the nerdy bits and the details of history. So for sure, we'll be checking these out. I will link to these articles and books in the show notes for today's episode so you can see how to spell liming and staining in Middle English and be sure to find the right thing. They're all in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned after the show for the link where to find those. Lucas, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's, what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friend in England, tell me that I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible, so your choice would be in addition to those. So if I get to have those already... Yeah, we we set you up pretty well, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, a sketchbook maybe? (laughs) If I had to pick something to read that I can read over and over again, hands down, it'd be The Lord of the Rings. Excellent choice. You can't get tired of that one. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? So right now I am smack dab in the middle of an illuminated copy of the Song of Solomon or the Song of Songs. And so I'm modeling the entire thing after a 14th century book of hours. I finished the text and I am, I spent this weekend gilding all weekend, gilding the letters and doing the illumination and the borders and all of those things. So for my scribal side, that's what I'm working on right now. For my ink side, I'm working on creating a whole series of modern fountain pen inks that are all sparkly and shimmer inks. And so I'm taking some of my permanent fountain pen ink recipes and adapting those into shimmer inks as well and trying to work on that. So always have too many irons in the fire. I would say exciting stuff though. That sounds fascinating. Well, I, we love the work at Scribble Workshop and you guys can check that out at the Scribble Workshop website, which we'll link to in the show notes below today's video. Lucas Tucker, thank you so much for being here and walking us through the history of Iron Gall Inc. and helping us understand what Shakespeare was using when he wrote some of his works. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I love getting to share what I do into the show notes for today's episode are resources you can use to learn more about Iron Gall Inc. and the scribal history of Shakespeare's lifetime. There's a link to Lucas's business, Scribal Workshop, and we've just partnered with Scribal Workshop to offer authentic 16th century quill pens, a getting starting kit with everything you need to make your own Iron Gall Inc., and of course, bottles of authentically created 16th century Iron Gall Inc. that would be just like what Shakespeare would have used when he was writing his plays. If you'd like to try out these things, they're for sale in the shop at That Shakespeare Life, along with even more history at CassidyCash.com slash episode 164. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP164. Don't forget that the video version of our episode today is available inside the streaming app for That Shakespeare Life, along with animated plays, archaeological site footage, documentaries, and more. Find that and start streaming your Shakespeare today at CassidyCash.com slash app. That's CassidyCash.com slash A-P-P. That's it for this week. Thank you for being here. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. 
Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.